buscado un mejor destino para ti, lo que viniera de ti. Tu pueblo, tu pueblo. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 10 for Sunday, July 7th, 2013. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger, and we're the team behind the documentary Identifying Nelson, Buscando a Roberto. Before we get started today, I just wanted to talk to everyone and say, please, we want to know what you think. Give us some feedback about the podcast. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you know, I just wrote this post about it, which uh, was getting a lot of traction online. And I basically say, you know, as creators, we put stuff out into the world and it can be incredibly sort of lonely when no one responds. And uh, what we would love to know from you is what's your favorite episode and why? John always asks for feedback. Today, I am asking for feedback. And we hope that you will take some time out of your day and just come say hello to us on Facebook. And that's identifyingnelson.com or Facebook slash identifying Nelson. Okay, now on to today's show. John, will you introduce our super secret guest for today? All right. Is it super secret? No, it's not, but that makes it more fun. All right. Our guest today is Nelson's brother, Derek. And I often like to introduce our film and our project by talking about Derek because I remember Derek and Nelson when they were children. And I was camp counselor for Nelson, and Derek came to visit. I like to tell the story about how at the beginning of the day, Derek, I think you were like four years old. Is that? I think right? I was five at that time. Okay, okay. And I remember you—you you hadn't seen Nelson for two weeks. It was probably his first time away from home. And I remember you grabbed his—he wouldn't give you his whole hand. He gave you one <laughs> finger. Yeah. And I remember you gripped that finger. As I mean, I didn't. I didn't see you all day, but I saw you beginning, middle, end, and a couple times in between. And whenever I saw you, you were gripping that finger. <laughs> and, and I'm not making that up. And, and it was funny. I told the story to Nelson just personally over the phone, and he found a picture, and there it was. You know, yeah, we, uh, we have photographic evidence <laughs> of your memory. It, it's yep. actually the, the picture, which we'll put on the website, is sitting up in this room. Uh, we're in the basement of our house in New Hampshire, and... Uh, the the picture, the original, is sitting on the wall here. So that's kind mm -hmm. of fun. I always like that, relate that back to the story and just say that I have two brothers myself and, you know, we're brothers by birth and, and you're brothers by adoption. And, and to me, that image really showed me a, a, a nice meaning of what family is. So here is Derek DeWitt. From, uh, he's in New Hampshire today. He lives in Florida. Um, and he works in marine biology, and he is also Nelson's brother, and we're glad to have him. Well, it's great to be here. Let's see. How should we start, Nelson? All right. I think we're going to start today's episode with a question that we just asked everyone uh, who is <laughs> listening, and that is, what's your favorite episode and why? Oh, my favorite episode of the podcast. Have you listened to all of them, Derek? Actually, you've had uh, nine so far. I think probably, if I had to choose, it would probably be episodes, I guess it must have been seven and eight, which were the interview with Ralph Sprinkles, because mm -hmm. for one thing, uh, several members of my family have gotten to meet Ralph Sprinkles, 
Uh, I have not, unfortunately. Uh, actually, I think the day when we first visited El Salvador uh, and we were going to Pro B for the first time and we met with them, I got sick. So uh, I had a stomach ache and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't meet him. Uh, so it was really interesting to hear some of his comments on the story and on the broader context of the story. And for those who don't know, or may not have had a chance to listen to those episodes yet, Ralph Sprinkles is um, from the Netherlands, and he, uh, he lived in El Salvador for a number of years and co-founded the organization Pro Busqueda with uh, a Jesuit priest named John Cortina, and this organization has gone on to find literally hundreds of disappeared children from the war, and he was the lead investigator that helped track down Nelson. So that's that's a little context. Um, and what what was interesting to you about those podcasts? I mean, had, did you know the whole story about the founding of Proby? Uh, no, at least not the details. Uh, so mm -hmm. certainly, those podcasts had a lot of new information, even for me, someone who's been very close to this and who knows a lot of the story, a lot of the background, uh, but. Uh, there's still a lot that I don't know. So those were very interesting. Mm -hmm. And as, as you pointed out, Ralph Sprankles is someone that you sort of knew of or that was somewhat close to our family. But hearing his story of the war and how he got involved in this, it seemed to be something that, that you found very interesting. Exactly. It was, it was a new perspective, mm -hmm. a perspective that I hadn't, had a chance to hear yet very cool so uh as always we'll put the links to those uh, two episodes with ralph sprankles in the show notes so in case you missed them you can go check them out um i i think the the next question that we're gonna do here uh is is we're gonna go back in time and i want you to tell me whatever you can remember about the reunion or that time period. I know that you were you were only 12, so uh, I don't know how many memories you have of that time, but just sort of what were your thoughts and feelings around the time of the reunion, getting to know uh, this new family? Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, I was 12 years old when uh, Nelson and I first heard about this possibility that he had family in Central America, and certainly that was uh, a big shock to me, uh, going back to that, that picture when I was five hanging onto his fingers, uh, I, I'd always been very attached to him, uh, my big brother, uh, I never really even thought about him as my adopted brother, even though I knew that that was the case, he was just my brother, so all these crazy ideas are going through my head, well, what's, what's going to happen to him, am I ever going to see him again, uh, you know, typical crazy 12-year-old paranoia. <laughs> um, well, it may not have been crazy, right? I mean... Well, well, there was no way to know. But mm -hmm. it, his family was very open about their intentions from the very beginning. Uh, and that certainly helped. Uh, the reunion itself was overwhelming. Even for someone who 
was not the person who was being reunited with his family, but who it was my brother. Uh, it was incredible. I still remember uh, when we first left uh, the airport, when we got to the airport in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, you go through immigration and customs and you have your bags and then you come out onto the street. Mm -hmm. And as we were walking out, there's this huge mass of people. It's fairly late at night. There's just sort of in a wave coming towards us. And there's this <laughs> one airport official saying, please, please step back. <laughs> it was, it, it was incredible. Uh, and was it like 30 people is that right i think it must have been at least 30 people uh because his uh his father was there uh his siblings ava and toto and his little half sister stephanie she was she was only six so she was pretty pretty young at that point but uh, there must have been, I don't even know how many aunts and uncles and cousins who met us, but it was. I, I think it was most of my aunts and uncles. And, yeah, certainly. And, and for, well, at least on my mother's side. And, and for reference, my parents, my birth parents were both the youngest of seven or eight. No, they're mm -hmm. youngest of seven. Um, so I, I have quite a few aunts and uncles and most of most of them from my mother's side were there. And I think a couple from my father's side uh, could make the, the journey, but yeah. Plus, I, their, I, plus their families. So. Right. And, yeah. and cousins and, and those things. And I think at the end, it was about 40 people we counted that, uh, that were there. Yeah. So that, that was hard to uh, uh, sort of <laughs> comprehend in a way. It was, it was difficult. Well, you're also 12. Yeah, you're 12. They're, they're now they're, uh, especially for me, I, prior to this, my family was quite small. My mm -hmm. dad has one brother and my mom has a brother and a sister. So mm -hmm. I had a few aunts and uncles and a small number of cousins, all of whom lived fairly far away. I didn't get to see them very often. Uh, and then my two grandmothers. And that was pretty much it for immediate family. And now mm -hmm. you have three, four dozen people uh, in, in front of you, all of whom are with open arms uh, wanting to treat you like family. It's very, very strange. Mm -hmm. and, so you got mobbed too. Yes. I mean, he, he, he got mobbed and then, and then, uh, my parents and I got mobbed and uh, <laughs> they wanted to include us, uh, from the mm -hmm. very beginning, which was nice. It, it helped because back then I was still quite shy. Um, and, and so it was a little overwhelming for me, mm -hmm. uh, but several of them really went out of their way to try and get me to come out of my shell, uh, talk to me, um, ask me questions. And so that helped a lot. Kind of to follow that up, um, on a personal level, what does it feel like to be part of this bigger family now? You know, like, like you were pointing out, I, I honestly, I think Derek, we, we had 
two cousins that we were that we could say that we were close, close to. Like, yeah, Matthew close and to, Melissa. Right, DeWitt in uh, in Canada, and the rest we didn't really know. So we've gone from two cousins to this entire family, <laughs> this big family. You know, so what did that mean for you? Or, or, uh, well, at first, I, I didn't know what to make of it, obviously. It was, uh, I wasn't sure how they'd react to me, but from the very beginning, they've welcomed me as if I were a son or a cousin or a grandson. Uh, I know several of your other interviewees have, have told you some of these anecdotes about Mama Sheila writing a letter to me after our first reunion, calling me dear grandson. Mm -hmm. Our most recent trip to Costa Rica, which was just a couple months ago for uh, Ava's wedding, uh, our niece, Daniela, uh, introduced several of us to some of her school friends and just without even blinking it's like this is this is my uncle this is my uncle this is my grandpa this is my grandma calling calling me her uncle and my parents her grandparents and mm -hmm. there's there's nothing feigned it's completely genuine i it's i i don't really know exactly how to describe it uh just Family isn't just about who you're related to by birth. Family is, uh, family is who cares for you. Yeah. Family are uh, people. Yeah. It's it's a tough it, thing it, to put into words. It's hard to put into words. Well, yes. You know, my my mind goes back to the quote that I used on Anna's miracle which was uh, losing one's family obliges us to find one's family, not always the family that is blood, but the family that becomes blood. And to me, that just sort of represented everything that happened with our two families and, and the joining of the two. Yeah, yeah. And, and for some people it may be hard to understand, but for us, it really isn't two separate families. Oh, this is his real family and this is his adopted family or his adopted family is his real family and his biological family is it, it's not like that it really is one big family and has been for, uh, for a, a, while. a while now i mean it, it took some getting used to certainly uh, well, there's also a language barrier i know you speak spanish very well now but yeah when i visited time, it's, it's, it's only started tough. learning though mm-hmm yeah, that that's that's a challenge. That's just part of the challenges. Mm -hmm. So, Derek, I, I guess one of the reasons why we wanted to to bring you on today was because uh, you are someone that was not directly affected by the war, but the war had an impact on you, and I think that's very interesting because it, um, you know, you you can say that. I I did not experience the war, but it directly impacted my life. Uh, Mom and Dad, they did not experience the war, but they were directly impacted in adopting me. But you are someone who's kind of on the outside of that. And I guess the question that I have for you is, how has the war impacted you? So the Civil War in El Salvador 
was not something I even knew about really much. What year were you born, Derek? Uh, I was born in 1985, so okay, the so was in full swing uh, while mm-hmm. I was young, and uh, the armistice wasn't signed until 92. 92, yes, that's what I thought. So I was seven when the peace accords happened, but I don't think I was ever aware of this. It wasn't in my mind as something that was even happening. I didn't know about it. And really, you didn't watch the news at age five. No, you don't watch the news at age five. So it's not really. Uh, and okay. even if I had, it's unlikely there would have been a lot on the news about it mm-hmm. at that point. But after the whole reunion, uh, I did look into it more with the rest of my family. And... Besides the obvious important impact uh, that I have this really awesome brother and this really awesome extended family now, uh, I think it's broadened my outlook on the world a bit. Once you look into something like that, it's hard to just focus on exactly where you are right now with sort of like blinders on and say oh uh this is what i'm doing and so it doesn't really matter what's happening in el salvador or the middle east or across the ocean or halfway around the world uh that that that's not important it's not my problem uh i i shouldn't worry about that and that's a very easy mentality to have um and there's nothing wrong with that. But after you've read about something like this and it has, like you can't ignore it anymore. And it makes it harder to ignore other things like it in the past and in the present. Were there things in particular, would you say like it was what you read or the relationships you had or certain things you discovered or or what Um, or if i can give any specific examples um but i think it was something that sort of happened over time as you yeah i think so i mean it certainly it wasn't it wasn't overnight this is just something that slowly happened over the course of my time in middle school and high school and then college um but i definitely think having to understand the background of where my new family came from, it altered the trajectory of how I looked at things. Uh, it's, It's hard to put into words. I think my view on the world isn't as narrow as it might have been. It Mm -hmm. it could have been very easy to just ignore certain things. Uh, But it really has broadened my horizons and my desire even to look into things, to analyze, to explore. 
it, it's you know it's kind of you let the genie out of the bottle and i've talked about that before and it kind of makes you think well if this happened in el salvador what else is happening that I don't know about or what else had happened elsewhere in the past yeah. that I don't know about. Right. I mean, or is happening or is else. happening right now. Sure. Or will sure. happen in a year from now. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your mother had, you know, when she interviewed, she had talked a little bit about Syria and you know, when we see news reports about Syria, they often feel kind of disconnected in numbers and statistics. But, but if you, uh, if you, you think about, war and 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 what's behind those statistics it's uh you know it, it's it's hard to even think about really it is you know? it's it's not something i necessarily enjoy contemplating but i think it's important to remember that wherever it is uh you shouldn't distance yourself so much that it just becomes a number these are people these are real people and they are going through something horrific. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of feel like that's a that's a great segue into the poem that you wrote, um, which is in my mother's book, uh, Missing Mila, Finding Family. And it's one of the interludes. And my mother, uh, our, our mother, I should say, weaves in three of these poems. Uh, one that she wrote, one that I wrote, and one that Derek wrote. And John and I thought it would be interesting if uh, if you could share it with everyone here and, and read it as you wrote it. Um, and I think that, uh, but, so it's in Spanish and English, and we're going to do the Spanish first, and then the English translation. And I think that you'll see very quickly why this is such a great segue. Would you like some background from from about the poem before I start reading it, like what, where it came from? Whatever you wanna, whatever you wanna share. Okay, this that would be poem that I initially wrote for Spanish class in tenth grade. I don't remember the context of of specific assignments anymore, but I decided to write this poem about uh, El Salvador, and. Later, uh, when my mom was working on the book, she asked me whether she could use it as an interlude for chapter six, which is the chapter on the disappeared children of El Salvador. She thought it was an excellent segue. And I said yes. I was a little uncomfortable because, uh, well, the poem itself, it, it seemed, it's a little idealistic i suppose um but i understood how much she wanted it in the book and how appropriate she felt it was and since then she's told me many people come up to her and and say that this poem is very very moving and and appropriate for where it is so uh, i'm quite happy that i was willing to let her use it uh so i'll read it in its original spanish first and then uh, the English translation that I did for, uh, for the book. The title of the poem is La Guerra Verdadera, which in English is the true war. Los monstruos gigantescos aterrizan en la aldea pequeña 
la gente grita, los niños chillan, los militares con carzaberas y ametralladoras frías raptan a los pequeños niños y se ponen en las parigas hambrientas de los monstruos. Y entonces vuelan. La gente llora. Esta es la guerra verdadera. Estas son las cosas que no lees en un libro. Los sufrimientos de la gente olvidada. Voy a hablar para ellos. Porque el mundo no se puede oír. No se puede oír. Es necesario contar su historia también. So in English, that means the gigantic monsters land in the small town. The people yell. The children scream. The soldiers with severe faces and cold machine guns kidnap the small children and put them in the hungry bellies of the monsters. And then they fly. The people cry. This is the true war. These are the things that you don't read in a book. The suffering of the forgotten people. I will speak for them. Because the world cannot hear. Cannot hear. It is necessary to tell their story as well. So I use a little bit of colorful language in that uh, poem. Mm -hmm. Describing the helicopters as hungry monsters uh, as they land in these remote villages and take the children. So I, I know, Derek, that you have said this before, at least to me or whatever, that, that you feel this poem is a little idealistic. A little pretentious. And yes. Why do you say that? I, I'm curious to, to hear why you say that. Well, uh, I suppose it is uh, at the end of the poem where I talk about how um, I, I use the word I and how I will talk about this because the world doesn't listen. Um, and while it wasn't my intent when I wrote the poem, I can understand how certain people would view that as uh, sort of, I can't think of the word now, uh, butting in where I don't belong. Uh, it's sort of uh, the great white savior kind of mm. trope. It's like, oh, uh, you need me to, to spread the word because you can't do it yourselves. And that isn't the truth. I don't believe that. I think the mm -hmm. most powerful way for people to learn is for people to tell their own stories. Uh, but when I wrote the poem, certainly I felt that I needed to be willing to share the story as well. That... I shouldn't be scared about talking about these things that especially people in my generation may have never heard about before. I think it 
I mean, we can tell the story, and it's still hard for somebody listening to that. Um, I mean, a you know, U.S. citizen to believe it's true, to believe that kids were taken off in helicopters. I mean, it's it's hard to comprehend, right? It, it is it's probably hard very to, hard for a teenager to comprehend. Hard to believe that that people would do this. And certainly, I know back when it happened, our government categorically denied that anything like this was happening. Abductions, uh, rape, torture, murder, uh, for various reasons. You've talked with uh, Margaret and Ralph Sprinkles about the background, the Cold War background that this war happened in. And so it was inconvenient for our government to admit that something like this might have happened. Uh, you know, I know like, like you just told us why you feel like this was a little idealistic. But when I heard the poem, especially in the context of the book, it really spoke to me in the way that, um, you know, one thing I've realized doing this, or, or one thing I realized when I was younger, is that I am the voice of my parents in some way. That as much as we would like to say, yes, they should be telling their own story, they can't necessarily, right? And it's not that they don't want to. It has a lot to do with the ability of of their ability to get their own story out there and to for it to reach the right people. And I think that I'm learning through the film that uh, storytelling is important and presentation is important and all these things get in the way, so to speak, of, of people telling their stories. And in that light, I do see it as we need to tell their stories or we need to enable them to tell their stories. And I think that, you know, even, even John, that's sort of what he's doing on this project. Like I would never be able to do a film like this on my own, but he has taken it on as, as his project and is sort of speaking for me through the film in a way, you know, like I may say it on, on camera, but John is the one who has to put it together and, and build this narration around it. And in that way, he is taking on my story. So um, while you may think it's very idealistic, I really thought it hit home and that, yes, we do sort of have to speak up. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's not us telling their story, but maybe it's us enabling them to tell their own story. And that's a way to... Well, they're telling their story too. Yes. I mean, your dad tells his story and your, um, your relatives tell their story. And I hope in interviewing them, we're allowing, we're facilitating that. Um, you know, your birth mother can't tell her story, right? Right. So clearly you're speaking for her. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's both. It's There's people in El Salvador, you know, people at Pro-B, they're telling their story as loudly as they can, thank God, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and there's us, and, 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 uh, and maybe we speak to a different audience is all. I think... One thing we kind of wanted to round out and end with, and and we've covered this generally throughout this talk, but um, is you care, you care deeply, and ab about this topic, about 
that there's still 500 kids missing from the war 30 years later, and that some of them for sure are alive. Um, I believe the government commission, which has started to step in and assist in some of the work that Pro-B does, found two people last week. Two people after really? you know, 25 to 30 years. Yeah. And Pro-B found somebody last month. I mean, this year, I, I know there's at least four or five people. It's probably more. Some of these don't go reported. But, but uh, the question is, why do you care and why, why should other people care? Why does this matter? Uh, why does it matter? Why does it matter to you maybe is the best way to answer it, I would suggest. Well, I suppose there are a variety of different reasons why it matters to me. Firstly, in a way to me it is personal. Uh, it's very personal. Uh, my brother was one of the disappeared children. Um, so the fact that there are still disappeared children, it, it, it's, it's an, it seems like an injustice that, uh, I, I can't just let go. I can't ignore this. This is who I am now. I, I am connected to this. Even if I, if I, even if I had never wanted to be, uh, I don't have a choice in the matter, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is something that is directly connected to my family, to who I am. Uh, mm -hmm. Beyond that, I suppose, certainly looking at, at the Civil War and at what happened has given me a lot of perspective about human rights abuses and uh, certainly uh, sometimes I take things a little personally when I shouldn't, when people are flippant about it. So um, to me, it's incredible that it's taken this long, 30 some years, and, and there's still all these children who we don't know what happened to them. And we may never know for some of them. That doesn't mean it's not worth looking into and investigating and continuing, but it's heartbreaking to realize that for every story like ours, like Nelson's and mine and our families, there are dozens of families that are still waiting, hoping, praying to hear good news from Pro-B or the other investigators that we have finally found your family member. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think anyone who has ever lost someone close to them can understand at least a little bit how these families feel. So, so why, why, why do I care? Why should people care? Uh, on some level, the question seems ridiculous to me because it, it should be obvious. 
the, the oh, why the question should be why shouldn't we care? This is basic humanity here. Why should we not care about this? And I don't think there is a reason. I don't think anyone could ever come up with something that I would believe as a response to that question that I shouldn't care. Yeah, well, I think that's well a, said. that's a great place to end it right there. I don't, I, Here's the music. I don't really have anything else to, to say after that. Um, yeah. John, do you have anything else to, to throw in? I, that was a great answer. Thank you for sharing your poem and sharing your experiences and, and being here with us today, Derek. I know we, we think about a lot about you and talk a lot about you when we're telling the story, and it's great to have you. Well, it, it was great to participate. Yeah, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad we were here together to. Uh, yeah. To do this. All right. And maybe so. maybe you'll leave us a comment on our Facebook group. Yeah. <laughs> I'm certainly going to be sharing the this this podcast with my friends. Spread the word, folks. Spread the word. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that, Derek. Um. All right. So that's our show, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for listening. It it means a lot. We are busy working on the film and super excited to bring it out to you. And this uh, podcast we're doing kind of to tide you over. Uh, any of the links and images from, that we talked about today are going to be in the show notes on the blog. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast by going to iTunes and searching for Inside the Journey. Uh, you can also download it on the web page. Make sure you download the enhanced version because that has all of the images and links built right in. It's pretty cool. It pops right up on your phone as you're listening to it. Uh, as Derek said, as John said, as I said, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a comment on Facebook slash Identifying Nelson. You can also email us at podcast at identifyingnelson.com. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please share it. Uh, as I say in this post that uh, got a lot of traction this week, if you want to support your friends, share their work because it, it really helps get the word out there and it means a lot to the creators. So we hope you will sh share this show and tune in next week. We are going to talk with Dani Sancho, who is my niece. She has traveled all the way from Costa Rica just to be here on the show. And we are excited to bring that interview to all of you. Um, I think that's it for now. Uh, I'm Nelson DeWitt. And John Younger. And, and cue the music. Oh, oh, oh.